0: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes.
1: Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
0: Today's special episode is an interview with Dr. Chris Millington of Manchester Metropolitan University. Dr. Millington returns for a record third appearance to talk about his new book, The Cliche Massacre, political and police violence at the time of the Popular Front. Our talk centers on the fateful night of the 16th of March, 1937, in which police killed six. The bloodshed was part of a broader conflict during the interwar period as the far right and far left battled in the streets. Far right convoys, Antifa, and a polarized political atmosphere marked the 1930s. Well, today we have our reigning champion, Dr. Chris Millington, returning yet again to talk about the crazy times that were the 1930s in France. Today we're talking about his book, The Massacre de Clichy, Violence Politique et Policière Autôme du Front Populaire. In English, it would be the massacre of cliché, political and police violence in the time of the Popular Front. Can you tell us what your book is about and the particular event that you seek to cover?
1: Yes, so the the book is about a, a specific riot that took place in Paris, in uh, March 1937. So uh, part of the book uh, focuses on this riot. It's quite a, a forensic study of what happened during the riot. But the other part of the book sets the riot within a broader context of confrontations and political violence during the 1930s. So I wanted to examine the broader themes of confrontations and violence in the 30s and then look at how this was played out in the street uh, in in Clichy in March 1937.
0: If anyone needs any background on this, I would recommend listening to the other episodes that you and I have done together because you have become quite an expert on the tumultuous period of the 1930s, a period of economic and political anxiety and a time of polarization between the far right and the far left. Now, your study examines a fascinating concept, street demonstrations and control of streets as political power. The power of crowds taking over an area and using that to exercise political power goes back a long time in French history, famously to the Revolution. Yet, there is something modern about the form street fighting took in the interwar period as left and right groups purposefully provoked riots for propaganda purposes. Do you see continuity between the revolutionary sans-culottes and the interwar street fighters, or is this more of a break with the past?
1: Well, I I see a continuity in terms of the the symbolism uh, of these demonstrations. So we could say that this revolutionary heritage hung over these street confrontations in terms of the fact that the street itself as a site of political action still had revolutionary connotations. So for example, left-wingers considered the street to be their domain and it was a place where they could take the fight to the enemy. And when left-wingers did stage these demonstrations. And if they descended into violence and they constructed barricades in the street, this was always seen as a really revolutionary act. Uh, that, and all all parts of the press would comment that barricades were built. On the other hand, the the right tends to see the street as an unruly and disorderly place, not one where right-wingers would gather spontaneously. And they would point to these barricades as being... Evidence of left-wing subversion, so so there is kind of this uh, the people are aware of this revolutionary heritage, but then, in terms of the the form of violence and all the symbols that go with violence, it's much more contemporary. So we can look to the late nineteenth century. On the left, we we have uh, the example of labour militancy at this time, and the image of the virile worker and virile street activist, and on the right. You have these extra parliamentary groups called leagues, which are founded in the 1890s and which kind of continue into into the 30s, and then of course we have the First World War, which affects everything the, the way people see the world. So this affects the paramilitarism of the left and, and right. Uh, so I'm not I'm not really saying that veterans really take part in street violence because it was actually much younger French who engaged in the majority of the fighting. But the left and right borrowed what we might call the stylistic devices from the war, like things like salutes, uniforms, and and hierarchical organizations of their movements.
0: What was the general nature then of street demonstrations? Can you explain how these groups would organize, form a procession of people or increasingly cars and target rival political groups?
1: Yeah, well, something we we have to recognise in, in the first place is that both the left and the right placed great importance on public space, but they did it in a very specific way. So they, they didn't try to take public space in, in a military sense. The point was that they would be seen in public space. So they considered the street, we could call it a stage upon which they could demonstrate their numbers and therefore demonstrate their strength. And and we could add their masculinity uh, into that, um, but there were there were differences to the way left and right did things in the street. So the the right was very much concerned with projecting an image of martial and military strength. So this meant that they sent their their leaguers into the street in uniforms. They staged very carefully choreographed parades and marches. And this was all to convey the image that the right was a disciplined force and one that could put down the left uh, if necessary. And they did this on various days of national significance, like the 14th of July or the the commemoration of Joan of Arc uh, in May. Now, the right, you mentioned cars. The right did use cars a lot. Uh, particularly, one one right wing group called the Quadrophen, which uh, would organize huge gatherings of its members. Um, it, they would organize these in secret, and they would give the members instructions at the last minute where the gathering would take place. And the, these members would travel in their cars. And now, sometimes there would be over ten thousand cars uh, carrying these members to the the meeting place. Now. Can you imagine seeing 10,000 cars in 1935? It must have been very intimidating. Well, it depends on which side you were on, either intimidating or impressive. As for the left, they uh, are a bit more spontaneous, so they don't really go in for paramilitary displays or paramilitary parades. What what they want to do is encourage popular mobilisation, so they... Uh, often call members into the street at very short notice to, uh, to well, well, they call it mass self-defence. So this meant calling members into the street to counter-demonstrate against fascist meetings. And that's, that's what happened at Clichy. And these counter-demonstrations were meant to show that the working class people of an area rejected fascism and they rejected this in what they thought to be the invasion of their territory. Uh, by the fascists. So I suppose in the end, we have all groups seeing the street as this really important political space where it's as important to be seen in the space as as, as important as it is to, to defeat the enemy in that space.
0: I am convinced that history is always relevant. I couldn't help but think of the Truckers for Freedom convoy when you asked if we could imagine what having all these cars would be like, and not just the Truckers for Freedom in Canada or in the United States, but there was also a sort of copycat movement in Paris, which met with violence when uh, Macron said that it would not be allowed within the city limits, but they went anyway. I'm sure we'll talk about some of these parallels, whether they are uh, truly accurate parallels or not. But before we get to modern times, let's focus on your book itself. So what impact did street fighting have on politics in general? Was it an isolated phenomena between left and right radicals, or did it change the broader political landscape?
1: Well, this is a time of really severe political division in France, Um, particularly after 1934, we see polarisation between the right and particularly the extreme right and the the left-wing Popular Front coalition, which is this alliance of the socialists, the communists and the radical party. Now, street fighting, we could call it relatively minor. And by that, I mean that fatalities were infrequent. But but fighting in the street was frequent. So, um, for example, in, in some towns, the, the local mayor would ban the sale of newspapers in the street because it caused so many fights throughout, throughout the week because their uh, enemies would attack their the rivals' newspaper sellers. Now, although these clashes could be minor, the press and political parties gave them great publicity especially ones that anything that involved firearms or anyone being shot. And in these circumstances, both sides would usually accuse the other of being the aggressor. So pretty unsurprising. And they would link the, the fighting to broader and long-established political lines of attack. So if the communists were said to have started a fight, it was because they were inherently savage and would use all means available to achieve revolution. If the fascists were accused of starting a fight, it was because they were because they were said to be violent paramilitaries like the black shirts in Italy and the SA in Germany, and they're trying to undermine French democracy for for Hitler's benefit. So, I think the importance of all this was that though there were there were relatively few mass outbreaks of violence, this regular fighting kept tensions perpetually high it kept the the language of or the the discourse of politics continue, continually radicalized and it did potentially affect the behavior of people in the street so it it's it's low-level regular violence that has this continual destabilizing effect on politics
0: so you touched on this a bit but your book notes that France was strikingly peaceful compared to its major neighbors, such as Italy and Germany, which had fascist takeovers, and Spain, which had a civil war. How would you describe interwar France? Was the violence and chaos overblown by the media of the time and by historians now, of course yourself excluded?
1: (laughs) Well, this period is often referred to as the the French civil war I, I suppose we could say that, that one thing we can be clear about is that there, there wasn't a civil war in France and what I didn't want to do was claim that France was as violent as Italy uh, or Germany uh, in ter- in terms of the number of fatalities resulting from violence because um, that that's an argument that could be immediately shot down really that several hundred people died in Germany in fighting and many more died in Italy. In France, it does look quite peaceful by comparison. So we have over, over 100 people die in 20 years uh, in, in France uh, in political fighting. But but as I say, in Germany, you get 100 dying in a month in, in, in the early 30s. And for that reason, Historians have tended to dismiss French political violence as undeserving of attention. One one French historian, uh, Serge Berstein, uh, famously described it as a simulated confrontation, that the people didn't really mean it uh, when they said that they were going to attack and kill their, their enemies. So the, the point I make in my book is that we have to be very careful about comparisons, because if we look... At France and Britain, for example, I'm yet to find anyone who died in street fighting in British domestic politics, which then makes France look much more violent in comparison with another long established democracy uh, on, on the continent. However, again, we have to be careful with the comparison because Britain is only peaceful if we ignore the example of Ireland uh, and, and the right. empire as well. So that seems to always be the case. Yes. Yeah. So, um, like I said, the, the situation in France is, is one of low level, persistent fighting. What What I mean by that is. Things like regular fighting in meeting halls or people would be attacked in the street if they were seen reading an enemy newspaper or if they were seen wearing an enemy insignia or a, a scuffle or a fight might break out in a bar. Most of the violence was spontaneous and it didn't involve many people when it did break out. Now, there were larger incidents of violence, but these were it was quite rare that large numbers of enemies would come face to face and purely because the police were quite good at, at keeping them apart it, we could say that the violence was overblown by the media because it, it presented an ideal propaganda opportunity to score points over the enemy even even a simple fist fight was blown out of proportion because there was great propaganda value uh, to be had in it but it it was important that this very regularity of violence meant that parties and factions became further entrenched in their positions, and it prompted them into action, whether people died or not. Really, so whether it was a, a, a whether France was truly peaceful or not depends on which comparison uh, you take. I wanted to examine France on its own terms, really.
0: Well, thank you for that. Whether or not France was truly peaceful, it did have some dramatic events, such as the right-wing march on the National Assembly in 1934, which some, perhaps mistakenly, feared as a right-wing coup a la the March on Rome or the failed Beer Hall Putsch. What other events occurred before Clichy that added to the
1: growing left-right tensions? Well, Clichy is the culmination, really, of a series of violent incidents that take place over a a number of years. So, And when I say a series of violent incidents, I mean ones that particularly stood out and involved the same groups, so that involved a a particular right-wing party. Uh, the the Croix de feu which then became uh, the Parti Social Français, uh, and an anti-fascist opposition. Now, the there had been a series of incidents in the in the districts around Paris and the suburbs of Paris in 1934 and 35, which had led to uh, serious fighting, often between anti-fascists uh, and the police, and these all add to what we might call, I suppose, a dynamic of violence. A, a cycle of attack and defense and and then re- revenge between left and right and this is really important because when people experience violent incidents and when political parties and factions reported on these incidents they didn't understand them as isolated they understand them as just just the latest episode in this serious confrontation and, and level of tension between left and right and they would they would often reference things that had happened many years ago by saying oh this is this is they, they haven't changed this is the way they've always done things they would have a list of of martyrs who had been killed in street fights on the left and the right and they would print these these pictures of them and uh, and show pictures of injured members and activists in hospital with bandages around their heads and things so so there are a number of serious incidents before Cliché which kind of come to a head I think at, at Cliché but I suppose my point is that the we we always have to look at the longer term history and why people responded in the way they did and it was down to years of of being conditioned to, to think about the opponent in a certain way through the violence that had, that had broken out.
0: So far, we've been talking about the left in general and the right, and particularly the far right in general, although you've mentioned the Croix de Fou. Can you Tell us what were the exact groups which were the leaders in these street demonstrations?
1: Yes, yeah, so so on on the left we tend to have the the Communist Party, which is the uh, I suppose the most forceful actor uh, in on the anti-fascist left. So this is a party that's founded in 1920. Um, of, of course, it aims to bring about bolshevik revolution in france uh, violently if necessary but in terms of actual violence it it does commit in the street in the 1920s it has a brief period of paramilitary uh, or paramilitarism Uh, it finds these groups called anti-fascist defense groups they didn't last very long in part because some members objected to the, what they th- saw as militarism. So they, they wore uniforms, for example. But also because the 1920s is a period when the Communist Party faces severe repression from the police. So um, it's much more difficult for them to operate out in the open. So this this period of paramilitarism ends at the end of the 20s, when the the party goes in for a new policy that tries to get the French public involved. So it, it thinks these paramilitary groups are too narrow in their appeal. We need to get the masses involved in violence, and they they decide. Well, the way we're going to do this is we will organize huge street demonstrations. If if the police try to ban the demonstrations, they they decide that they will go ahead anyway. Because the point of these demonstrations is to fight with the police. So they want to be repressed in the street by the police because they think that this will be evidence that the, the bourgeois regime is the enemy of the people and that this will bring them new, new recruits. And actually, if you read communist newspapers at this time, they're full of very bloody descriptions of violence and the, the awful things that the police have done to innocent women and children. Uh, In the street. By the mid 30s, this policy has changed again to one of what was called uh, mass self-defense, so anti-fascist mass self-defense. So this is in the context of what the party sees to be the growing fascist threat in France. And and what it really entails is a rapid organization and staging of what they claim are peaceful counter demonstrations to, to fascist meetings. And again, they, these demonstrations are meant to show that the fascists are not welcome in particular areas, particularly working class areas. But they often lead to violence uh, with the police. So, so that's kind of a, a summary of the left. On, on the right, we have this party, social Francais, which is originally founded in the late 20s as a veterans association. And it's take, then taken over by a man called uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, François de La Roque, And he transforms it into a paramilitary league. So it's it's anti-Republican. Uh, it doesn't engage in elections because La Roque rejects that. And it grows hugely after 1934. So it expands beyond the veterans constituency to attract young men who hadn't fought in the war, women, and children, and it has about half a million members by 1936, so it's it's very popular. It's banned in 1936 by the left-wing government which, because this government of the popular front bans all violent fascist groups. But what Leroque decides to do is he just transforms it into an ordinary political party, so the Parti Sociale Francais. He begins to tone down the violence of its rhetoric and its paramilitarism, but in 1937, when Clichy happens, it does still have street fighting sections, um, which were called the, the propaganda flying squads. Uh, so it's, it's actually a meeting of the PSF in Clichy in 1937 that sparks the riot.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Factor. Factor provides fresh, never frozen, chef crafted meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Factor includes a variety of plans, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto, among others. Factor is perfect for a busy routine, with high-quality, healthy food that fits into your daily schedule. Mouthwatering dishes like chicken and mushroom tetrazzini, cavatappi and Italian-style pork ragu, and artichoke and spinach chicken are all on this week's menu. And you don't want to miss out on those. In addition to savory meals, Factor offers snacks and wellness shots, the latter of which has become a personal favorite of mine. Go to factormeals.com slash French History 50 and use the code French History 50 to get 50% off Factor Meals. That again is factormeals.com slash French History50 and use the code FRENCHHISTORY50. Sign up today. Your stomach will thank you. You've touched on this in response to my last question, but there is one other major group involved in street demonstrations, which were the police. What role did the police play? Did they favor one side or another? And what was the backlash?
1: Yes. Yeah, of course, we can't forget the police. And actually, they present a really interesting case study. Well, it was one of the most interesting parts of my research, if only for the simple fact that it was actually the police that killed more people than anyone in in France in in politically violent confrontations. So left wingers and right wingers often didn't come into contact with each other. They fought with the police and died at the hands of the police. Now, this is all in spite of the fact that the police are actually trained to avoid violence. So we must bear in mind that this is a re- supposedly a Republican police force, and lawmakers want the police to respect the democratic rights uh, of, of the French. The problem was that on the ground, that didn't often work in practice. Uh, it, it clashed with a, a culture of policing that favoured violence. There were... Generally, two types of police officer that were involved in violence, so firstly, there was the 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 guardian de la paix, so we could call him the the lowly constable uh, So, patrolling the streets, making the rounds um could be he could be called to police larger gatherings, or he could just be the man on the spot who has to disperse spontaneous gatherings. I looked a lot at police training manuals. And they were advised to sort of move people along in the street very politely, uh, move them along with a smile, they were advised to do. Actually, they moved them along by swinging their truncheons at, at them, uh, swinging the, the capes that they wore, which were quite heavy. Sometimes police swung their bicycles at people and they resorted to their fists uh, more often than not. They would beat activists in the street or sometimes unfortunate bystanders would just be caught up if they were too slow to be along, and these bystanders would be pummeled by by these gardiens de la paix. Uh, so that they have the the reputation for being quite thuggish, uh, these, these constables. When more serious violence was threatened, there was a, a group of police called the Mobile Guard. So these were specially trained riot police officers. And they were attached to the army um, and they were called in when political groups had decided to organise large demonstrations. So they they do things that we would be quite familiar with, like set up barricades, occupy important locations. Um, and they're there to just as well look generally frightening. So they have uh, black uniforms, they have black helmets, uh, they carry rifles, sometimes they appear on horseback to charge into the crowd and these mobile guards are very much hated by the left in particular left-wingers see them as a, a military force as a provocation they see them as the 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 bludgeoners of the working people and so these two forces or two elements of the police the constables and the mobile guard as i said they do a good job of of policing crowds and policing confrontations but they do it with violence but i think it's it's important to recognize too and this might not be uh, what what many people want to do is that these people these policemen were actually under a lot of stress so they were themselves attacked uh, from all sides they were often hit with stones or bottles or bricks or they were shot anything that uh, anyone in the street could lay their hands on to swing at a policeman or throw it at a policeman. So one of the things I want to do with the book is show that these, these policemen were uh, sometimes responding in kind to, to the treatment that they were suffering and they didn't really favor one side over the other. I don't think I, I never really found that the police expressed any sort of bias against the left or the right. If, if I found that more anti-fascists were injured fighting with police, that's largely because more anti-fascists were prepared to fight with the police or put themselves in positions where they would, where they were threatening the police. So, so that was the only time I ever found that there might be evidence of bias, but I didn't really see it as bias in itself.
0: We've covered a lot of ground just getting to Clichy, but now we are pretty much there. Can you set the stage for the 16th of March 1937, and why did so many left and right demonstrators gather in this particular neighborhood?
1: Okay, so the the background to the rioting then is that Clichy was understood to be a working-class district. Uh, of of Paris w- whether it really was that is uh, was beside the point really it was it it had a left wing mayor a left wing deputy it was thought to be working class and the the parti social francais the psf this right wing group decides to hold a meeting in clichy now this was quite cl- we could say it's the classic tactics of uh, left lieutenant colonel De la Roque because he's in the habit of holding meetings in working class areas and left wingers see this as a deliberate provocation it's it's their territory they they say and so the usual response was for the anti fascists to call a counter demonstration now the what the psf does is it, it it responds in a way that i feel that a lot of modern right wingers do is that they say that um they have every right to hold a meeting because we live in a democracy. We can say what we like. We can go where we like. This is a democratic freedom. Even if the PSF didn't really subscribe to democratic freedoms, they want to be able to exercise them themselves. And they argue that this meeting is just a social gathering for families and that there's nothing political about it. But that, again, that is beside the point because for the anti-fascists, there's there's been a challenge laid down. And the only response is that the the anti-fascists... Have to accept this challenge. So this is typical of thinking of the time that these perceived challenges have to be confronted and fought off. Of and it's often framed in very gendered terms. And the situation in March 1937 was doubly tense because Laroque at that time was on trial for illegally reconstituting the Quadifer in the form of the PSF. So there's this complicated political background, and so. What the left-wingers in Clichy do is they call this huge counter-demonstration against the meeting. And from that moment on, it just all spirals out of control, really. Whether the PSF is genuinely holding a a social gathering or not, it can't back down. Because if it cancels the meeting, it will lose face, it will look weak, and the communists and the anti-fascists will say they've scored a victory. So even if the PSF is not actually intended to provoke the left it it refuses to cancel the meeting and that in itself becomes provocative and so this means that when both sides show up in Clichy on the 16th of March 1937 while violence was not inevitable activists were ready for it if it happened and it was this this readiness to commit violence stemmed from, as I've explained, these immediate events before the night, but also from the much longer history of confrontation that I've explored earlier.
0: What happened on that night? What do we know and what don't we know?
1: Well, we we do have quite a lot of sources uh, to use uh, when studying cliche, And in fact, the reason I wanted to write the book was because I came across a huge pile of eyewitness statements in the in the Archives de Paris from people who were present on the night, and and also actually in some of the boxes of documents, I came across the, the bullets that had been extracted from the victims uh, as well, which was quite eye opening. But of course, these these eyewitness statements are given to 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 the police. The people who are giving them are either, they are left-wingers, right-wingers and police officers as well. So the full range of actors were, were interviewed. Now, of course, I did have to approach them critically because there were things in them that were very obviously motivated by a desire to, I suppose, escape criminal charges. So, for example, the, the left-wingers who were interviewed didn't name any of their comrades who they had shown up with on the night. So they were very vague about who they'd been with. Right-wingers claim to be completely innocent victims of communist aggression. And meanwhile, the when you look at the police eyewitness statements, it's very strange because it, it, if you believe what is in those documents, no policeman fired his weapon, which is very strange given that a handful of people were actually killed by police bullets, but no one actually shot shot one. <laughs> Um, so one of what, the life's
0: great mysteries, yes,
1: yeah, it's very very strange, yes, um, and uh, so I think what actually happened on the night shows how violence was was in actual fact not inevitable. So when vi- whether violence broke out or not depended on a lot of different factors that happened in the heat of the moment. Of course, this is made e- it's easier for violence to break out if everything's on a knife edge, like like they were. But what we have at Cliché is that a large crowd of anti fascist demonstrators begin to gather on the town square uh, in the early evening, not far from where the PSF PSFs were meeting in in a local cinema. Now the the police had failed to occupy that square, and this I would argue is their first mistake because it means that the demonstrators can argue that it can occupy that square and it also means that the demonstrators push towards the cinema along a very narrow street and uh, if you look at pictures from the night you can see sort of thousands of demonstrators rammed up against police lines and the police are trying to hold them back and it must have been genuinely suffocating to to be there but on the on the front row of the the demonstrators, they, there are punches exchanged, and the police respond by charging and beating back demonstrators. And they use the the butts of their rifles to uh, to to force them back. And in actual fact, the police were ordered by their commanders to throw back at the demonstrators anything that was thrown at them. So that includes like rocks and uh, cobblestones and bottles. Now this lasted for some time until the police call for reinforcements midway through the evening. And this leads to what I would say is their second error. So the, the reinforcements arrived in open side vans from neighbouring districts. So that meant the, the policemen inside them were vulnerable to attack. But also the drivers of these vans didn't know where they were going to. So some of them didn't know the best way to get to Clichy. When these police vans arrived at Clichy, they ended up causing a traffic jam on the road to Clichy because they couldn't get through the crowd. And uh, the van drivers, in some instances, decide that all they can do is drive into the demonstrators. So drive over them, I, I suppose. And what that means is that when the police reinforcements arrive on the square in Clichy, they're battered, they're bruised, they're fearful for their lives, they're not in communication with their commanders, and so they just start firing indiscriminately on the demonstrators and and several people die as a result.
0: What was the immediate aftermath of the violence?
1: The, there was an inquiry into the the uh, the deaths so there were five civilian deaths on the night um, and and one policeman uh, was killed. Part of the inquiry focuses on the role of so-called uh, agents provocateurs, so people who may have incited the crowd to violence. And in the aftermath, some left wingers claim that actually shots were fired at the police by these uh, provocateur. Uh, in the crowd there's a small amount of evidence that police find that these provocateurs were present but it's not really an explanation that i like really because i think the violence can be much better explained if we look at the mistakes that the police made on the night and in the end it wasn't the first time anti-fascists and police had fought so you didn't really need anyone to provoke violence It, it could come about perfectly naturally on its own now the, the investigation also seeks to establish whether or not the dead the dead of the riot, for, well, for whatever of a better way of putting it, could be blamed for their own deaths. So the the, investor, the leading investigator, uh, the, the magistrate, asks his, uh, his doctors to examine the hands of the dead victims to determine if there was any traces of of iron or, or dirt or, or on them which would show they'd picked up projectiles and thrown them at police? Or was there any evidence that they had held a handgun uh, as well? So was there, was there an imprint on their hand of a handgun? Because he wanted to be able to argue that the police had fired in self-defence against these attackers. Now, conveniently, he ignores the fact that most of these civilian dead were shot in the back. So they were shot while they were running away uh, from the police. Now, in the in the longer term... The violence becomes simply another episode in this long spiral of confrontation during the 30s. So all sides respond in what we might call the usual way. Either it was a communist act of aggression or it's a fascist act of aggression. But it does cause some problems for the ruling Popular Front government because the Communist Party, which supports the government, denounces the fact that a left-wing administration has overseen a massacre of workers and it calls for a purge of the police. So it it causes problems within, well, within the corridors of power at a time when the popular front is struggling to hold itself together.
0: You mentioned how the violence at Clichy is a forgotten episode in French history. Why is that? And what events would you say overshadow it?
1: Yeah, if I, was, if I was to be perfectly honest, I think we all as historians claim to be researching forgotten episodes uh, in the past or, or things that have been overlooked. I, I, I do think that the Cliche Riot is overlooked because political violence in interwar in France has been overlooked in general. So I mentioned his French historian Serge Baerstein earlier, uh, who he, back in the 1980s, he wrote a, a very famous article in which he argued that this confrontation was simulated. So what he meant was that political vi- rivals like to attack each other verbally, but when it actually came to fighting in the streets, they they were reluctant to do so, they didn't want to shed any blood. And this this article appears in the context of the debate about fascism in interwar France, which which we've discussed previously, that the historians like Berstein have tried to minimize the strength of French fascism. And I suppose to serve this agenda, he therefore wanted to dismiss violence in French politics. But when you actually look at the article that he wrote Um, He cites just one source um, as a footnote, one archival source, and it's one that has nothing to do with violence. So I'm not quite sure how he arrives at this idea of the simulated confrontation without anything to to back it up. Nevertheless, it's been quite influential on historians of interwar France, and anyone who's looked at violence in that period tends to concentrate on the riot of 6th February 1934, which you mentioned earlier when fascists and veterans demonstrated in Paris against the government. But the point I wanted to make in in the book and in my broader work on violence is that these mass outbreaks of violence, like February 1934, they're actually quite rare. And it's other outbreaks of violence in these persistent, more low-level, low-key incidents, which Clichy could be one of them. These show that violence wasn't sporadic and spectacular. It was low level, but it was a persistent feature of French democratic politics. And uh, we could add to that, we, well, we could ask the question to what extent does d- democratic politics resolve the, 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 the need that people feel to use violence, or, or does violence sit alongside democratic politics always?
0: Your work seems highly relevant to the present time, which is depressing for us, though great for your career. The polarization of politics in democratic capitalist states, street fighting between the far left and far right, the rebirth of Antifa, all date back to the interwar period in some form or another, Yet you've criticized other historians who claim that interwar France and modern Western countries' experiences are very similar. Most notably, in our previous episode, you criticized American historian Robert Paxton for drawing a parallel between the 6th of February, 1934, right-wing demonstration in Paris, and the 6th of January, 2021, attack on the U.S. Capitol. What similarities do you see between interwar France and modern political developments, preferably within France, although I suppose we can talk about the U.S. as well, since I think we always have to at some point or another. The U.S. does seem to draw people's attention. And aside from the similarities, what differences are there and finally, what lessons would you have us draw from your work on interwar popular political conflict?
1: Well, I think, of course, we can look to the interwar years um, and many people have for lessons and comparisons with, with modern politics. The, we have to admit the period provides some numerous, very colourful examples that we can cite when when we discuss modern politics So, for example, the comparison between interwar fascism and the the modern right uh, and extreme right. But as with the case of Paxton, once you really start to get into the detail of these comparisons, it's where problems arise. So in this sense, I like to look at, these things two ways. So firstly, we can look at them as as a citizen. So um, I I could freely make comments about modern politicians and political leaders who resemble historical fascists on on a very broad level. But as a historian, I feel that I'm trained to be critical. I'm trained to recognise the importance of context and nuance. And that makes me really uncomfortable to make comparisons between modern developments and and, and history. Because we can only really make these comparisons on, on the most general uh, or in the most general terms. So the, the problem is that if we're thinking about extremism and violence in France today, we have to f- factor in all the other things that would make it different to the experience of the 30s. So the legacy of fascism and the Second World War, for example, or the legacy of the Algerian War. In, in France, in particular, and also things like social media and the use of smart technologies to organise activists and demonstrations and spread messages. Now, in the in the French context, we we could of course look to the Gilets Jaunes movement and their protests of a few years ago against uh, President Macron. But from what I know of them, they're less easily distinguishable as either left or right than than the groups during during the interwar years. The Thinking about my work on violence and cliche, I think the, the main lessons I might draw from looking at these years and the political conflict of them, uh, they're twofold really. Firstly, once politics polarises, it's difficult to re-establish common ground. Polarisation, I think, is the result of both sides' actions. From what I know of American politics, I can see that it seems to be, from my point of view, in in the UK, very polarised. And uh, the problem is uh, with that is that you lose the ability to appreciate nuance or to understand issues from a range of viewpoints or to to disagree with someone with civility. And and I think it's difficult to see how you get that back uh, once it's gone. And I think the second lesson I've learned is that Words have consequences, and that might seem a very simple lesson, but what is said and printed in the political arena can prompt people to act in the street. And so, politicians really need to be cautious about indirectly inciting violence. Now, none of this means that violence is inevitable. And often, as I've mentioned, when it broke out in interwar France, it was due to any number of reasons, but activists can be mentally prepared for violence by what they've heard and read about the enemy and often looking just for any excuse, however minor, to start a fight. So I think that rather than, I suppose, make comparisons with the 1930s and today, I think uh, it's much more fruitful, I suppose, to suggest lessons that, that we might learn. Uh, And I I think they're the two main ones that I think are most important for politics today.
0: Well, I should hope that we would learn the lessons of history, though unfortunately I am not holding my breath. Thank you again for coming on the show. I am sure that the next time there is some sort of extreme violence between right and left, we will have you back to bring up Another obscure, overlooked episode from the 1930s, which was more or less perfectly in line with what's happening today. The book is Le Massacre de Clichy, Violence Politique et policière au Tombe de Front Populaire. It is currently in French, but when we do get an English translation, I will be sure to link it. Uh, In the meantime, everyone just work on your Duolingo so you can read it in its original form as it was meant to be read. Thank you again very much, Dr. Chris Millington, for joining us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: As always, donations keep the podcast going. So if you would like to make a one-time donation or become a patron, please consider doing so. Thank you very much for your continued support. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues.